All right, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. A long time ago, when I say a long time ago, 1754, uh, two British statesmen hated the Christian faith uh, so much that they got together and they were like, you know what, we're going to do everything we possibly can to rid the great continent of uh, all of these Christians. Their name were, sir, names were Sir George Littleton and, and Sir Gilbert West. And um, they were so convinced that Christianity was a plague on their modern society that it had to be expunged immediately and permanently. So one day they got together, they started brainstorming ideas and tried to fashion some sort of strategy that, they would, that would enable them to eradicate uh, their, their country of Christianity or Christianity from their country. And they thought through all of the theology and all of the doctrines and stories and characters, and they realized that there were really two main pillars of the Christian faith. And if they could get rid of these two pillars, then Christianity would just crumble um, in their absence. And, and those two pillars were the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so they put their heads together and, and they agreed that one of them would study the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the other would study the conversion of Saul. And they would each write a book disproving both of those things and then Christianity would disappear. And so they separated and they got to work. All kinds of excitement, all kinds of enthusiasm. They were on a mission. A few months later, they got back together to talk about their progress. Only they were... Uh, surprised and discouraged that they had both found compelling evidence not to disprove the resurrection of Christ and the conversion of Saul, but rather to prove those things. And so they fortified themselves and encouraged each other to keep the faith, that the Christian faith is a farce, and they kept at their work. Only by the time they were done with their research, they had not only failed to defeat Christianity, but they had actually converted to Christianity and gave their lives to Christ. In a beautiful twist, and I love this, because God loves irony, um, they both ended up writing books affirming what they had originally set out to disprove. I had Littleton's book on the conversion of Saul, and I was going to give it away today, and I can't find it anywhere, which means I've already given it away to someone, and I've forgotten about it. I'm so sorry. One of you is going to leave with a free book, maybe next time. Outside of Pentecost, the conversion of Saul is the most important event in the history of the church. And the church starts in Acts chapter 2, by the way, because some of you were like, what about Jesus? Church starts in Acts chapter 2. Outside of Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost, the conversion of Saul is the most important event that has ever happened in the history of the church. And it's not just because he ended up becoming the greatest missionary of all time. It's not just because he ended up writing a good chunk of the New Testament and planting a lot of churches and doing a lot of miracles and even eventually dying as a martyr. It was because he did all of those things in spite of violent opposition to Jesus Christ and a vicious obsession with trying to destroy his church. It, would, it honestly would be like Osama bin Laden or somebody like that who is religiously zealous in his attempt to wipe Christianity off the face of the planet, somehow converting to Christianity, becoming a church planter, becoming a missionary, and dying as a Christian martyr. It's essentially what happened with the apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus. It's an unbelievable story. It's a pivotal moment in the history of the church. The story itself is so famous that the Beatles wrote a song about it. 
Johnny Cash wrote a song about it. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are supposedly making a movie about it, even though that was announced like seven years ago and there's no word on it, so we'll see. Um, Whether you've been in church for your entire life or this is your first Sunday here, you have likely heard about the Apostle Paul or the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. The problem, though, with famous stories, and you know this, the problem with famous stories is that they become so famous and they get told so many times that more often than not, they end up becoming sort of a cliché. And, and we kind of become numb to it as they're told over and over again. And that's what's happened with the conversion of Saul. It's one of the most incredible stories the last 2,000 years. And yet, it's almost been reduced to a cliche about God changing a man's name from Saul to Paul. And if you've heard about this story, that's probably what you think of. The cliche, like his name used to be Saul, now his name's Paul. And it's really, really cool. It, it preaches great. God wants to change your name too. And... Full disclosure, I have preached this sermon before when I was a college pastor. You've probably heard it. Problem, though, is that the conversion of Saul has nothing to do with God changing his name to Paul. In fact, God doesn't even change his name at all. And I didn't know this when I preached the sermon like seven years ago. Um, God doesn't change Saul's name. Uh, Saul is called Saul. Paul is called Saul 11 times after his conversion. Did you know that? I didn't know that when I preached that God changed his name seven years ago. Um, In Acts 13, God himself calls him Saul, uh, which would be kind of weird if he changed his name to Paul in chapter 9. The truth is that Saul has two different names. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. He goes by both. And the decisive shift from the Hebrew Saul to the Greek Paul in the book of Acts was more subtle than it was spiritual. It was just a decision that Luke made. I think he got tired of going back and forth. And he's like, I'm just going to choose one and I'm going to stick with it. And so he chose the Greek name, probably because Paul was becoming the missionary to the Gentiles, the Greeks. So one of the most incredible stories, one of the most important stories in the last 2,000 years of church history has become so famous that it has been reduced to a cliche, and that cliche isn't even built on reality. Acts 13.9 explicitly says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Spirit. It preaches good, but it's not true. The truth is in there somewhere. But the truth of the conversion of Saul is better than we realize. It's so much bigger than a little name change. And I want to show you this truth today because I think that if we could really see the truth of his conversion, if we could really grasp it, if we could really hold it in our hearts, it would actually change everything about our lives. Some of you came to church today for the first time in months. Some of you have been dragged here by a friend or a spouse or a boyfriend or whatever. You don't even know why you're here. You're here to hear this today. This will change your life today. And some of you have been coming to church forever. And you're numb. And you're jaded. Because you've been trying the Christian faith for a long time. And it, it's still like the, the delight and the joy and the pleasure that we just sang about is like way over there. And you're not even convinced that it's real. God brought you to church today to hear this. It's going to change your life today. The truth is so much bigger than a name change. And so I want to show you this truth. It's going to change the way you think about God. It's going to change the way you think about yourself. And it's going to change the way you think about everyone around you as well. 
So with that being said, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to show you three things. The first thing, and they're going to sound like cliches, but they're not. First, God is powerful enough to save anyone. You came to church expecting to hear that. That sounds like a cliche, but it's not, and I'm going to prove it to you. Look back at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. That word breathing, just stop for a minute. That word breathing, you can circle it if you want. It's the word that's used to describe war horses that are ready to charge into battle. Um, it's the word that's used to describe wolves. In, in extra-biblical Greek literature, this word describes wolves that have the scent of blood. And they're just hunting down their prey so they can tear it into pieces. Luke basically wants us to imagine Saul like not a human, but uh, uh, not a human, like a, a raging wild animal that's about to tear other people to pieces. That's what Luke wants us to see by using this word, breathing. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 2. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that's what Christians were called at the time, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, later in Acts 22, Paul says that he hunted the people of the way to the death. So we don't know if he actually stabbed them to death or cut off their heads or burned them at the stake. We don't know if it was his hands but the end result of his hunting was the execution of Christians. And so it is fair to say that Paul, or Saul, let's just call him Paul because I'll get confused. I don't know. We'll probably go back and forth. Saul killed Christians, okay? He's, he's involved in hunting them down like wolves and tearing them to pieces. In Galatians 1, he says his violence was more brutal and more extreme than any of his other peers, the word that he used to describe his persecution in, in his letter to the Philippians is the word zeal. He talks about his, he was a zealous persecutor of Christians. That word in the Greek has so much violent imagery. That word zeal, it's not like passion. The word zeal, according to Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, was used to describe people that would ride through towns and raise them to the ground, burn them to the ground in search of answers, in search of their the people that they were hunting. And so Saul is riding from village to village, town to town, burning them to the ground, hunting Christians, uh, probably imprisoning people who were harboring Christians so that he could kill them and wipe them off the face of the planet. That's Saul of Tarsus. You don't know anyone like Saul of Tarsus, by the way. If you did, you wouldn't be here. You'd be dead. Guys, Paul wasn't slowly, I mean, I, I think when I thought of Paul riding to Damascus, like he's on his horse and he's just like casually trotting to Damascus, you know. You know, he's talking to his guards and, well, you know, we're really excited to get there. We're going like, to maybe throw some Christians into jail. And they get there and they, they, they put the handcuffs on him and they gently put him in the police car and they take him to jail where they await their fair trial and due process for, you know, an unbiased judge. Like, that's how I envisioned this going, going down. That's not what's going down at all. I, I, Paul... Is, is on his horse, and, and he's beating that horse as hard as he can, so that horse is running as fast as it can, and it's almost like Luke wants us to see fire in his eyes and smoke coming out of his nose. Not literally, but it, it just, just kind of get the image here. He's going to war. He's not casual about this at all. And every time he pulls up to a village and he doesn't find what he's looking for, he's burning the villages to the ground. 
hunting Christians to the death. Violent frenzy. Christians in Damascus are so afraid of him that Ananias doesn't even want to go near him. Even after Jesus, the son of God, the resurrected God-man, appears to Ananias in a vision and says, hey, I want you to go. He argues with God. He's like, no way. I, I know you're God, but you haven't heard about this guy. I, let me tell you something about Saul. I've heard, I've, I've heard through the grapevine, this guy's, he doesn't mess around. And then in the midst of all of his rage and all of his zeal and his violent obsession, Jesus stops him dead in his tracks. I mean, just the bright light shines. That horse is galloping. I mean, just screeches to a stop. Paul falls off the horse. He's blinded by the light and instantly changed. There's no Christian to plant a seed there's no Christian to remove any rocks. There's no sermon that causes him to question. There's no trial in his life that makes him curious. There's no Bible verse that breaks through. There's no prophecy that finally convinces him. There is violence and then instantaneously a vision of Christ and he's converted. Just, just like that. That's power. This is what I want you to see. If Jesus had the power to do that with Saul of Tarsus, there isn't a person on the planet that he does not have the power to save. No one is too zealous in their opposition of Jesus Christ. Some of you right now are zealous in your opposition of Christ. I am so glad you're here. There isn't a person in your family there isn't a person in your neighborhood, there isn't a person in your workplace who hates Jesus enough to be able to withstand the power of his spirit drawing him to salvation. Not a single person. And you, you might think, well, that was just a one-time thing. You know, that was for the Bible. That was 2,000 years ago. Jesus was doing way more cool stuff back then than he is today. You know, if he's so powerful, why don't we hear more stories of more Saul's of Tarsus Radical, miraculous conversions. Heads up, your conversion is miraculous too, but why don't we hear of the Osama bin Ladens and all that kind of stuff? You know, I can't think of any violent zealots who are persecuting Christians all over the world that are all of a sudden being saved. And if that's what you're thinking, I'm so glad you're thinking that. I came prepared for you. I have stories for you. I have lots of stories for you. I'm not even going to be able to tell them all. But Nick Ripkin, I mentioned him last week. I read, his, I read his book, Insanity of God, and I gave you some of those stories. He has another book called The Insanity of Obedience. You should read that one too. And he has story after story after story of God drawing Muslims to himself in the Middle East through dreams and visions. This is so cool. Sometimes in their dream or vision, they would see a bright light. Sometimes they would have a dream about the Bible. Sometimes they'd hear the voice of Gabriel in their dreams. Sometimes they'd just hear a voice that was disembodied. But in every single case, this vision would launch a three- to five-year pilgrimage to Jesus Christ. And they would get saved by the millions. One Muslim in Central Asia had a dream about a Bible. What a, what a random dream, you know? Um, and in his dream, he was supposed to find this Bible, but to his dismay, he didn't know anyone with a Bible, okay? They're illegal. And one day, several months after his dream, he was in a market full of people, and uh, a stranger walks up to him, 
hands him a Bible and says, the Holy Spirit told me to give this to you. And then he just walks away and disappears in the crowd. And so this guy's just standing there stunned in the middle of the market like, what? what? Reads the Bible, gives his life to Christ. Another guy um, was told in his dream, again, to go out and find a Bible. The Bible's amazing. We have, we have 10 of them on our shelves, like at home, you know? And these guys are like, well, where am I going to find a Bible? And so he's like, well, I guess I'll go look at the the local bookstore. The only problem is the local bookstore was dedicated to selling nothing but the Quran. And so he, he walks into the Quran dealership and, um, and, and, and he's just like looking for a Bible. And he's, he's just scouring the shelves, of course not going to find anything, but he gets to the very back of the Quran dealership and at the very bottom there's a one tiny copy of a blue Bible. And he pulls it out and he buys it and he goes home and he reads it and he gets converted. It's not just guys who are being saved over there, too. Young women receiving visions in the millions. Uh, one woman received a vision of a Bible again, and, and um, she went to her family, and she shared the vision with her family, and, and she asked her dad, what should I do about this? And he was quiet, didn't say anything, and so she just went on with her life, obviously perplexed and confused by this vision about a Bible. Then after several weeks, her dad said, hey, I need to show you something, and so he brought her into his office, and he reached under a, a hidden compartment under his desk, and he pulled out his hidden Bible that was there, and he said, here, I think I'm supposed to give this to you. Like, I was scared first, but here, take it. She would have never guessed that her dad had a Bible. Nobody would have guessed. And she read it, and she believed, and she was saved. After five years of interviews with people like this, Nick wrote that women and men are being saved through dreams and visions in all of these closed countries, in the millions, God is powerful enough to save anyone. And so now you're probably thinking like, okay, well, that's, that's cool. Um, but he'd never do anything like that here in the States. You know, that's for like the, the Middle East and, you know, they're not churched and they don't have pastors and seminaries and podcasts and Bibles on every shelf. Like, Maybe he was powerful enough to do that for Saul. Maybe he's powerful enough to, to do that overseas. But there's no way he could break through the secularism and the hedonism of my friends here in Charlotte. You ever feel that way? I knew you were going to feel that way. So I have another story for you. So um, about two years ago, we were doing a collective. And uh, Caroline and I were, were teaching on dating. Okay, so we're up here. We got, we got so many of you who are in desperate need of help with dating, like <laughs> desperate need. Um, and, and you still need help. One wasn't enough, okay? So, you know, if you'd like advice, feel free. We can give you some advice. We have some married people here, some seasoned saints in the Lord. You need help, okay? So, so Caroline and I, we're, we're doing a collective on dating, and, and I don't mention the gospel. I don't say the gospel. There's just a random guy off the street and I noticed him, like, I don't know who this guy is. A friend probably brought him. No, a friend didn't bring him. He just showed up. Long story short, he ended up talking to one of our elders after our talk on dating. And he gives his life to Jesus. And so that's not the cool story, though. So, um, so he has a sister. And his sister is like as pagan as you can be. She's not a seeker. She's not interested at all. And when I say pagan, I just mean unbeliever. I don't, I, that's not like a derogatory term. It just means like unbeliever, okay? Hedonist, south end. You know, it's... It's, you live here. You know what I'm talking about. So, so uh, he drags her to life group. He, she does not want to come. 
She has no desire to be there at all. She's mocking. She's making fun of him. She's scoffing. But at the same time, she's his sister. She loves him, so she's going to support him. So he drags her to life group. And they're talking through Genesis 1 at the life group, okay? It's all these guys down here. It's their life group, of course. It always is. Uh, so, so Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And she's like, hold on. You're telling me there's a God? And that God created everything in the universe? She's like, I've never heard this before in my life. That's crazy talk. They're like, yeah, this is like a well-known, you know, idea. Like, you know, a lot of people believe this. And science backs it up. It's, it's kind of out there. You know, I've never heard this before in my life. She's kind of making fun of it, scoffing. It's all complete nonsense. You know what I mean? Well, afterwards, the leader shares the gospel with her. And again, she's just not buying it. She's not interested at all. And so he's like, listen, just go home and read the gospel of John. And so she's like, all right. So she gets her Bible, goes home. She reads Matthew Mark, Luke, and then she gets to the, the story of the blind man, I believe in John chapter 9. She falls asleep. I'm sitting with her getting coffee not too long afterwards as she's preparing to be baptized, and she's telling me this story. And she's like, Ben, I can't explain it, but God showed up in my dream. And I was like, really? I've never heard that. I was like, what did he look like? <laughs> and... And she said, I don't know. And I was like, man. <laughs> um, and then I was like, well, what did he sound like? I don't know. Well, what do you know? What happened? And I'm just sitting there like, like a kid in a candy shop. Like, what, what, do you, what happened? And, and she's like, I can't explain it to you and I can't describe it to you except he made sense of everything that I had just read. And he showed me how it was true. And I woke up and I converted to Jesus. <laughs> she got baptized. Gave her life to Christ. God is powerful enough to save anyone. Here's the thing I want you to see and I want you to pay attention if you are a believer. If Jesus is powerful enough to save anyone... You and I should be praying for everyone. Power of Christ is carried out through the prayers of his people. Every single time, guys. This is how he works in his sovereign wisdom. He is powerful enough to save. He loves to save. He's willing to save. But the power is manifest as his people pray. If you think about Saul, Saul's radical conversion was a response to Stephen's radical prayer. Remember, Stephen's the first martyr. He's being stoned to death. Saul is there approving it. This is what gives him the taste for blood. He's like, I want more of this. And Stephen, as he's being stoned, heaven opens up. He sees Jesus standing there and he says, oh, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Forgive these men who are in the process of killing me right now. Stephen is praying for the conversion of Saul. And Saul's conversion is the response. It is the answer to that prayer. Those Muslims that are getting visions of Christ in the Middle East are getting those visions because Christians are praying for them all over the world. When was the last time you prayed for someone? To have their eyes open. That God would save them. Somebody in your life? When was the last time you prayed for somebody in, in, in Central Asia? You know what I mean? When the people of the Chinese church, who are also in the midst of persecution, 
when they learned about the persecution that their brothers and sisters were facing in the Middle East, they committed as a church to wake up an hour earlier every single day so that they could pray for revival in the Middle East. They're being persecuted in China, and they're waking up an hour early every single day, and, and it's like Old Testament prayers. It's like weeping, and it's mourning, and it's ripping the clothes, and it's, it's, it's crying out to God in desperation for him to save those people. They're not just getting visions out of nowhere. It's the response of the prayers of the people of God. I believe that Jesus has the power to save anyone, and if you believe it too, then we will be praying for everyone. I think about George Mueller. Again, I mention George Mueller all the time. Um, he committed to pray for five of his friends every day until their conversion. And I love this story so much because I get discouraged when I'm praying for the people in my life who are far from God because they, they don't get saved right away, right? And so, so George Mueller, he writes this in, in his journals, and, I, and I'll let you read along with me. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God, and I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. Can you imagine praying for someone every single day for five years? The second was converted. I thank God for the second, and I prayed for the other three. Day by day, continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. So now we're up to 11 years. I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. The man to whom God, in the riches of his grace, has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the same hour or day in which they were offered, has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals, and yet they remain unconverted. This is so powerful. But I hope in God, and I pray on, and I look yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. That's what it looks like to believe that God has the power to save anyone. And so I told you it looked like a cliche, but you don't believe that. And I don't believe that. And the reason I know that you and I don't believe that is because we don't pray every single day for the people who are close to us and far from God. Persistently, passionately, zealously. Those two men were sons of uh, one of Mueller's friends. They were still unconverted when he died in 1897 after having prayed every single day for 52 years. After he died, his prayers were answered. And both of those men came to faith a few years after. All five. 52 years of prayer answered. Guys, if you believe that Jesus has the power to save anyone, then you will pray for everyone, and then you will share with everyone. I think one of the reasons we don't share with everyone is because we don't actually believe God can save them. We write people off. 
they hate Jesus too much. Their worldview is just totally different. There's no way that they would ever be willing to give up that sin for Jesus. God is powerful enough to save anyone. We need to see that. We need to believe that. We need to hold it in our hearts, and we need to let that change our lives. That's the first thing we learn from the conversion of Saul. Second, God is merciful enough to forgive anyone. It's not just that Christ has the ability to save anyone. It's that he actually has the desire to save everyone. And this is a radical truth. We see examples of this over and over again in the pages of Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy 2. One through four, Paul urges believers to pray for the people who are close to them, including kings, including the rulers that are persecuting them, because, he says, God desires that all men would be saved. So pray for all of them so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, Peter says that the reason that Christ has delayed his return for so long. You're like, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? He promised he was going to come back yet. The reason that Jesus hasn't come back is because he's patient with unbelievers and doesn't want any of them to perish without repentance. In Ezekiel 18, the Lord himself says that he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked and he longs for them to turn from their evil and return to him. The mercy of God is not just a New Testament thing. Some of y'all have been told this lie, that in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath, and in the New Testament, we get Jesus, and then he's a God of mercy. That's not true at all. In the Old Testament, God was a God of mercy, just like he is in the New Testament. Micah 7 says that he delights in mercy. Look at this with me. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on all of us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. He delights in mercy. He doesn't hold his nose and look at you like, I guess I'll give you some mercy begrudgingly. He delights in showing you mercy. He's, it, it brings him great joy. When you come with your sin and he doesn't give you the punishment that you deserve, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, it brings him delight. You don't think about God like that, do you? <laughs> no. You're convinced that he's mad. You're convinced that he's full of anger. You're convinced that all he sees is your sin and he's tired of you. And he just wish it you'd clean yourself up. No, he delights in mercy. Any of you think there's too much baggage in your past? Too many skeletons in your closet right now even? For him to want anything to do with you? The testimony of Saul, the testimony of Scripture shows us over and over and over again is that there is no way in heaven or on earth that you can out the mercy of God. There's no way. There is more mercy in God than there is sin in you. 
That looks like a cliche. That's something we say over and over and over again. But have you put that in your heart? Have you held that in your heart? Do you actually believe that? We just prayed a prayer of confession right before here. I guarantee you, every single person in this room confessed the same thing you confessed last week. You know how I know? Because I did too. We're all the exact same. We might not struggle with the exact same things, but we're all just as weak, just as faithless. Our minds wander just as much. We get distracted just as easily. We run to idols at the same pace. And some of you, the enemy, even as, as we were praying, the enemy was talking to you and telling you, God doesn't listen. God's not listening. God could never forgive you. You confessed this last week. You confessed it the week before last week. You confessed it 10 years ago. God's done with you. Don't even bother. The enemy was telling you that, and you believed him. And so some of you just stood there defeated and jaded, just waiting for it to end. There is more forgiveness in God than there is failure in you. It never runs out. It never grows cold. It never gets tired. His mercy will never be exhausted. Do you believe that? And I was reminded of Thomas Terrance, perfect example of the patience and kindness and mercy of God. Uh, he shared his testimony with Christianity Today a couple of years ago. And incredibly powerful. I'll just read it, and, and, and maybe you'll find yourself in this. Not specifically, but just, just listen to the mercy of God. He said, I came of age in the early 1960s in Mobile, Alabama, which had been segregated since its founding. In 1963, reacting to the federally mandated desegregation of Alabama's public schools, Governor George Wallace uttered his infamous pledge of segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. I read some white supremacist, anti-Semitic, anti-communist literature that was circulating within my high school, and then I met the people who were advocating these ideas. The civil rights movement, they said, was part of a communist plot, and the U.S. government had been infiltrated by communist agents. All of these warnings made me anxious about America's survival, and my fears soon turned into hatred toward those I perceived as America's enemies. And so it was only a short step to getting involved with Mississippi's dreaded white knights of the Ku Klux Klan the most violent right-wing terrorist organization in the United States at the time. One summer night, as my accomplice and I attempted to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman, we were ambushed in a police stakeout. My partner was killed at the scene. Four blasts of gunshot fire at close range left me critically wounded. The doctors told me that it would be a miracle if I lived another 45 minutes, and yet God spared my life to the astonishment of the doctors and the dismay of the police. If anyone deserved to die, it was certainly me. At the end of a two-day trial, I was convicted and sentenced to 30 years. About six months after arriving in prison, I escaped with two other inmates. But a couple of days later, we were apprehended after a blazing gun battle with the authorities, during which one of the other inmates was killed. Had this man not relieved me from standing watch about half an hour earlier that day, I would have been the one killed. Again, God showed me mercy. 
Back in prison, I was confined to a six by nine foot cell, maximum security unit. To keep me from going crazy, I read continuously, and this eventually led me to the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. But as I read the Gospels in my prison cell, my eyes were opened in a way that went beyond simply understanding the words on a page. My sins came to mind, one after another. Conviction grew, and with tears of repentance, I knew I needed God's forgiveness. I knew it only came through Jesus Christ, and, and he had given his life to pay for my sins. So one night I knelt on the concrete floor of my cell. I prayed a simple prayer, confessing my sins, asking Jesus to forgive me to take over my life and do whatever he wanted with it. Jesus saved him in that moment. As I look back, he writes, over the nearly 50 years since God saved me, I can only thank and praise him that he didn't give me what I deserved. But because of his mercy and his grace, he gave me what I needed. And then he quotes the passage I just quoted to you. He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Some of you need to believe that today for the first time. Some of you have said that you've believed it. Intellectually, you believe it, but you don't believe it in your heart. You need to believe that today for the first time. That God delights in showing you mercy. Finally, the last thing I want you to see is this. God is gracious enough to use anyone. That's three, sorry. God is gracious enough to use anyone. Did I not? I just messed it up. Yeah, sorry. That's not Hazel's fault. That's my fault. Look back at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go and circle this. He is a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles. He's going to stand before kings and of the children of Israel. Guys, mercy is what happens when God doesn't give us the punishment we deserve. You've sinned. The penalty of sin is death. If you don't get death, which is what you deserve, that's mercy. Grace is when God gives us blessings we don't deserve. That's mercy, that's grace, okay? So they're two different things. God is full of both, mercy and grace. He doesn't just save Saul. He doesn't just forgive Saul. The audacity of grace and the scandal of grace is that he's going to allow Saul to join him in his work. It's like David after he commits adultery with Bathsheba. This always blows my mind. Every time I read Psalm 51, this blows my mind. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. He kills her husband to cover it up. And then he takes her as his wife. And there's all kinds of power dynamics there. It is like every bad sin you can do. Like all the worst sins, okay? It's a terrible evil. He's got all kinds of consequences that flow out of that. They're going to be consequences for the rest of his life because there are consequences for sin. You never break God's law, you just break yourself on it. And yet after the prophet Nathan confronts him, David repents and God shows him mercy. Look at his prayer with me in Psalm 51, just a brief snippet of it. He says, have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he knows he deserves death, but he cries out to God for him not to give him what he deserves. Okay, that's mercy. He's begging for it. This is what's so audacious to me. This is what's so dumbfounding to me. David is so certain of the unfailing, loyal, and steadfast love and mercy of God that look at what he prays in verse 12 of the same confession. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit so that I can teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That to me is so audacious. I mean, he's just done all of the worst things that you can imagine. And he's asking for mercy, and he, he gets mercy, but he's not just asking that he won't be punished. He's basically saying, God, make me a teacher and so that I can teach other people, so that they won't transgress, so that they won't sin. Use this thing, show me mercy, but then use it so that I can bring sinners back into your presence. And God says, yes, that's grace. See, mercy is not getting punishment but you cannot get punishment and then you could just keep wallowing in the fact that you've wasted your inheritance. You got forgiveness, you got the blood, you got Jesus, but you sinned it all away. And so now he's done with you. He can't use you. You've got eternal life, but that's it. Heaven's coming, but that's what you've got to look forward to. He can't use you on earth. Any of you feel like that? Now, this is the audacity of grace. This is what he showed David in Psalm 51. And so for 3,000 years, we've been reading this psalm, and God has been answering that prayer. We've been taught through David's life about sin and transgression. We've been called not to follow in his footsteps, and we've been brought back into his presence as a result of Psalm 51 for 3,000 years. God has answered his prayer, yes, that's grace. I told you the story of Thomas Terence just a minute ago, the, the KKK guy. I didn't tell you that, that God didn't just save him, but he used him too. God didn't just deliver him from hatred, but he actually developed love in his heart for others, love for others that looked different than him. He didn't just spare him from eternal punishment, but he eventually allowed him to be paroled years later, years before he was supposed to be paroled, but about six or seven years later. After getting his degree, he ended up going into vocational ministry, and then he became a pastor of a small church that was ethnically diverse. And he got to serve people of all different colors and all different backgrounds for the rest of his life for 50 years. Guys, some of you are convinced that God loves you, but you aren't convinced that he wants to use you. And I think that's one of the main reasons the church is crippled in America. Some of you believe that he has enough mercy to get you into heaven, but not enough grace to work through you here in Charlotte. You've got enough faith to believe that he can save your soul, but not enough faithfulness to use you even when you keep letting go. So day after day, week after week, Month after month, you sin and you fall, 
and you fail and you waste your inheritance. You go back to the chains of your old life and you're convinced that there's no way that he could be pleased with you, let alone manifest his power through you. I want to tell you this today, and I want you to hear this, and I want you to believe this, and I want you to hold this in your heart, and I want you to leave, and I want you to never go back to the lie, because that is a lie from the pit of hell. Never go back to that lie. Never again. Say today, I'm never going back to that lie. God chose you, and God called you, and God loved you, and God blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ before he laid the foundations of the world. That means before you ever had the opportunity to squander it. He already said, you're holy. He already said, you're good. He already said, that's my son, that's my daughter, and I'm very pleased with you. He already said, the glory that you gave me, I'm giving to them. He already said, you're going to be my mouthpieces in the world. You're going to be my messengers of reconciliation before you had an opportunity to prove anything or waste anything. He already chose to bless you with every spiritual blessing. That is audacious grace. That is dumbfounding grace. That's amazing grace, you know. That means the joy of his presence and that means the manifestation of his power has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. That's why we sing songs, he will hold me fast, because we don't hold him fast. I mean, if we ever sing a song, I have held you fast, we should just confess right away, because we're lying, okay? We will never sing, I have held you fast. We always sing, he will hold me fast, in spite of us. And he gives us the joy of his presence, and he gives us his spirit, and he reveals his power through us, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, not because we're better than anyone else, but because he is full of grace. The conversion of Saul is one of the most powerful stories in the whole Bible because it shows us the power of God to save us. It shows us the mercy of God to forgive us, and it shows us the grace of God to use us. In other words, it's one of the most powerful stories in the New Testament because it's one of the most powerful examples of the gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the same gospel that's at work in you right now in this moment. All I want for you today, all I want for you for this week, all I want for you for the rest of your lives is that you would see the gospel that you would believe the gospel and that you would hold the gospel in your heart. And when the enemy comes with his lies and tries to put a wedge between you and the Father and you and the Son and you and the Spirit, you know it for what it is, a lie. And you fall to your knees and cry out to the God of grace, to the God of mercy and to the God of power to reign in you, to rule through you, to manifest his power in you. All I want for you is to live in the hope and the joy and the peace of that. And so would you commit to doing that today? Let's stand. I'm going to invite you to pray. I'm going to invite you to commit to it right now, where you stand, alone, to the Spirit. If there's a sin that you need to confess, confess it, because he is faithful to forgive, and he delights in showing mercy. If there's a promise you need to believe, 
Tell them. If there's a step you need to take, tell them. Commit right now. And after we do that, I'm going to lead us in giving. And then we'll go to the table. And then we'll sing praises to him.